Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Because obviously yeah. parents' instinct is to say, I, I, that's, my bit, that's my job. I will, I will decide what my children eat. But I think it's part of education. I think you don't have any say in the maths curriculum and you shouldn't have any say in the eating curriculum. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. On the show, we have probably one of the best known faces in the culinary industry in the UK today, Proleith CBE. I had the absolute pleasure of working alongside her on our new Channel 4 program that's out. Um, and she's probably best known for her role as a judge on the Great British Bake Off, but she has had the most varied and interesting life you cannot imagine. She grew up in apartheid South Africa, witnessing her mother struggle with her campaigns against the injustice. And then she went on to find her love of food and fashion in Paris. But she's also led a campaign for contemporary sculpture to be exhibited on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. She's published eight novels. She's written 14 cookery books. She's obviously started this successful restaurant and cookery school business, one of which was Michelin starred. She's adopted a child from war-torn Cambodia in the 1970s, as well as her more recent work championing better nutrition in schools and becoming an advisor the government's hospital food review a wealth of experience and at 81 there is absolutely no stopping her and i must read her autobiography relish and you must watch her documentary with her daughter lida it's one of the most touching documentaries i've ever seen and she really does allow herself to be vulnerable in that program and by her own admission on the program as well she's not someone who cries and she <laughs> she blubbers throughout the whole thing and I, you can tell why i mean it's just it's such a a touching documentary 
Um, I'm not going to say much more because I just really want you to listen to this from start to finish. Please do enjoy my conversation with Prue. Somebody I'm privileged to call a supporter of my mission um, and also a good friend. I wanted to start by talking about your experience. I mean, you've been in the industry for a number of decades. You're one of the most well-known faces of the industry. But where did that love of food come from? Like, what what sparked that interest uh, right at the start? Well, you know, I was always a greedy child, and we ate very well in my childhood. But I was brought up in South Africa, and we had a cook. I mean, you know, in South Africa, colonial times, it wasn't actually a colony, but it was felt like that. You know, white people were very privileged. Black people had a horrible time. Um, but we had a wonderful cook who was Zulu, called Charlie. And he had been well-trained. Um, and he uh, he just, I, I mean, I'm ashamed of it now because I never realised what skill went into it. You know, I used, I mean, just the black hands put um, wonderful food on the table and we gobbled it up. But we had no, I had no conception of what cooking involved. And it never occurred to me or to my parents that I would be a cook because sort of privileged white young women went to university and they didn't, um, nobody said be a cook. And so I um, it wasn't until I got to university in France where I was studying French and French culture and civilization that um, I fell for food because it's very difficult to live in France and not get interested in food because everybody talks about food all the time. And, um, you know, in my childhood, nobody talked about food. It was considered slightly vulgar. You know, you you didn't talk about money, sex, food, religion, politics. I don't know what the hell you did talk about, Rupi, honestly. (laughs) Those are all the interesting subjects. (laughs) But, um, I mean, I think that we talked about the theatre and because my mother was an actress and um, my father was in business and, you know, but we did not talk about food. But in France, everybody talks about food. You know, the, the taxi drivers talk about the best restaurants. Yeah. The, the um, metro workers, you know, really care about where they're, which, which little cafe they go to. And they, I mean, everybody knows what, what the best restaurants are, where the, and the, you know, the chefs, are, even then they were really interested in where their raspberries were grown and who ma- mm. raised the best ducks and so on. So... I suddenly realised it was a serious subject and one that I was obviously interested in. So I decided I'd be a cook. And so wh- where did you train then? Did you, I did came you train to London in- because I couldn't afford to... I wanted to go to the Cordon Anglais in Paris, but I discovered that it was... It was quite funny, actually. I went there with a friend and I got my father to agree that we could do this course at the, at the um, French Cordon Bleu. And we turned up and we paid um, what seemed to me a huge amount of money and they were told to come back in a, in a month's time and when the course started. And so we turned up with our little... Um, we had sort of frilly mob caps and, and aprons and um, and we turned up and they said, presented us with an even huger bill. And we said, but we've prayed already. But now I could speak French because I'd had a month of intensive French. And they said that was the deposit. <laughs> I, hadn't un- <laughs> I hadn't understood. I'd only paid the deposit. So I couldn't afford it. So um, 
Anyway, I remember my friend and I, we walked out of the Cordon Bleu. It's in the Rue Faubourg Saint-Honoré. And we walked down the street, which is a very fashionable fashion street, you know, with posh fashion houses in it, and a few little cafes. And we slipped into a cafe and sat at, at this table. And we had become aware that there were two really cool guys following us. Um, we never met, but we were 18, you know, we thought, no, that's good. <laughs> so we skittled into this cafe table and they skittled in after us. And there followed a month of the most, uh, I mean, that was really good for my French because that's what taught me French, was his boyfriend. who was a, yeah, yeah. He was a French circus performer or something. Anyway, he, he was a juggler. <laughs> so, so I got taught French by a juggler. <laughs> So I had a month. I had a month of that, and um, and then I went to the Alliance Française to um, help my French, and then I went to the Sorbonne. And all the time, I was very interested in you know when I was a student, and we were queuing in the student restaurant in the Cité Universitaire, which is the sort of campus for the Sorbonne. Um, I saw, you know how the French have first courses, which are little dishes of carotte râpé and and little chickpeas in a salad and a few beans on a plate. And there were all these little first courses. And I saw one of them was just about three or four radishes. You know, this French breakfast kind of radishes with pink ends. Yeah, yeah. Very fresh with the leaves still on. Three or four radishes, a screw of... Um, salt in a little bit of paper and a blob of, of butter and a piece of bread, you know, baguette. And I said to this guy next to me, I said, qu'est-ce que c'est que what's that? You know, I'm never, you know well, that's not food, that's, that's, that's not a first course. And he said, oh, it's delicious, just try it. And he, so we sat down together and he taught me, he said, take the radish, smear it through the butter dip it in the salt and put it in your mouth and follow it with a piece of bread. And it was utterly delicious. And it, it really taught me that, really, that um, good ingredients need no messing around, you know, just eat them. <laughs> so that was my first gastronomic lesson. That is that is brilliant. I mean, I, I, can, I can imagine it with me now, like, you know, the... Uh, uh, the thought of you just having such a simple plate and it being completely revolutionary. And, and was was France almost where you wove your two loves of fashion as well as food? Because, you, you know, you've, you're known to be a very fashionable woman. Well, I know that's so funny, isn't it? Because I've never thought of myself as fashionable at all. And I just like bright colours. I'm just quite in your face, fairly vulgar, really. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in cool grey and cool beige and... You know, I, I mean, I think some women look fantastic just in a sort of creamy white and gold necklace and very subdued because they, they just look so elegant and so smart. Mm. But I look ridiculous in that stuff. You know, I, in fact, when I first met my um, husband, which was only 10 years ago or 11 years ago, um, when he asked me out for a date, I thought I'd better be very cool. And so I got dressed up in all the greyest, beigest things I could find, and all gold and everything else. And we went to the pub, and he said, why are you wearing all that stuff? He said, when I met you, which was at somebody else's house, he said, you looked fantastic. And he said, what's with all this? And I said, well, I'm trying to impress you. And he said, well, <laughs> four 
unfortunately, he likes color too. And, um, but I've never, you know, when I was a when I was a child, fashion. You know, nowadays, um, two year olds start to fuss about what they're going to put on, and you know, they only want those wellies or they only want that jacket. But until I was a really grown up, I never ever thought of matching anything with anything. I just took the top pair of shorts off the pile and a top T-shirt or whatever it was, and that was I just took whatever was there. And I'd never th- worried about whether it went with anything. But as I've got older, I really, I love colour and I love, and I'm rather um, boring about it. My daughter used to say to me, Mum, why do you always, why do you, you're so matchy-matchy. Everything, you know, if you're wearing a blue dress, you have a blue, well, I'm wearing a blue top at the moment and I've got a blue necklace on and blue earrings. And, and blue, blue earrings, Blue yeah. specs. Because <laughs> it's the easiest way to dress. I just pull out all the things that are the right colour. Mm. But um, but she says it's, you know, you should have clashing colours, not matchy-matchy. And But I'm helped now these days because of... Um, I have a stylist now for, for Bake Off, and she's okay. become a great friend. So she, I've now stopped shopping altogether. She just buys stuff that she thinks I I would like, because she knows me well now, and um, and so it's fantastic when we have a fitting or you know we're talking. I'm having to do some film stuff, and so I don't even have to go to the shops. I mean, it never, <laughs> even pre lockdown, I didn't go shopping. She shops. And it just takes away everything I don't want. It's 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 amazing. Wonderful. I I I must say your your husband is pretty bold to say he didn't like your outfit on your first day. <laughs> well, well I, think, I mean, you might have put it more tactfully. Was I really like what you were the other day? <laughs> I can't remember. Anyway, but he is he is very up, outspoken. I mean, I have a. A range of of um, necklaces and earrings now, and and I try to mostly wear my own range because especially if we're doing something if I'm doing something public because I'm sort of advertising my own range. And there's some things he says. Why do you, why are you wearing that? He says I lo- I prefer the you know he often buys me stuff in street markets and we travel a lot or we used to before lockdown, and so I've got necklaces from South America and from India and from the Far East and from South Africa and from you know from um, Ethiopia, and and they're all wonderful. But he gets quite upset if I just wear my my range and not but not. All, but I I do wear everything. You know. I wear, yeah, <laughs> I just like. It. I have I have a wall, a whole wall of. He he made me um, some metal trees, you know, like those sort of trees you see in gifty shops to hang earrings yeah. on. Well, they're like that, except they're four foot high and four foot wide, and there are two of them. So they take up a whole wall, and they have they have nothing but necklaces hanging on them. There are about 200 necklaces. I mean, I couldn't wear all my necklaces in a year, I don't think, if I wore them <laughs> all once. And then I, and I, my excuse for this is to say, well, it's a hobby, and it's art. This is art on the wall because they do look amazing. Mm. And I'll send you a picture if you like, and you can stick it. Yeah, on, on yeah, the please podcast. do. Um, and um, and then he and then he saw that all my bangles and there are lots of them were just in a basket, you know, and it's, you have to rummage for them. So he built another one of these metal uh, trees, but it has poles. It's two trees with poles across, like a ladder. 
And the poles are made of rolling pins, and he just painted all these rolling pins black. And I, so all my watches and um, necklaces and bangles go on there. Yeah, so they really stand out against the black background. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all, it's, That's um, brilliant. Anyway, I, I, I'll send you a picture sorry. because it might be fun to put the picture on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. I love this insight into your wardrobe. It's brilliant. I didn't think we were going to go there, but that's great. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned your your husband's quite outspoken, but I noticed that, you know, your writing, um, particularly of late, is it's really direct and it's sort of unapologetic. Have you always had quite um, strong views about things that you've been comfortable expressing? Was that something that you've um, developed a, a habit for uh, well, in, in later? I suppose I've probably got, I've got more strident as I've got older or more, um, but I've always been quite bossy. I mean, my, my parents used to call me bossy boots. And so I think I have always been a bit opinionated and, and bossy. Um, but... Um, I, you know, I've been writing. I mean, I've been working as a sort of journalist part-time ever since Paris. I used to write a column for the Johannesburg Tatler from Paris, which is quite wow. fun, which are quite funny to read them because I was only 18 or 19. No, I was 19, I think. And they're very sort of um, gushy because I'd never been out of South Africa. And the thing, the freedom of it was just so amazing. And I was the first time I was away from my parents. I was living... Uh, an independent life and of course I was away from apartheid which was what was so interesting because it never it hadn't occurred to me in all my you know I I, I came from very liberal parents and my mother campaigned against apartheid and all the rest of it but we still I still accepted the fact that my <clears throat> nanny had to sit at the back of the bus and I could sit at the front of the bus and you know mm. things like that there I was in Paris, sitting at um, you know at a cafe in the Boule Miche or something, and um, students would plonk down next to you, and there would be a couple of Algerian students or Moroccan students, and we'd all be eating couscous together. And I was thinking, you know, I'd be arrested for this in South Africa just for, you know, this guy wouldn't be allowed to sit on the same bench as me, and and I I wouldn't be allowed to you know have any kind of relationship with anybody who wasn't wasn't white. Extraordinary. Wow. And so it wasn't until I was really grown up that my sort of political conscience woke up. Anyway, um, and I, you know, I just think there are some things which are seriously wrong. And, and it seems to me, because I'm rather simplistic, that the solutions are much simpler than people think. You know, if you take, um, I mean, they're not really simple, but the, it's, they're simple to say. I mean, Take food, for example, and children getting obese. Um, the, the simplest thing to say is they need to change their diet. Changing that diet is, of course, much more difficult because it's more about persuasion and you're not going to get people to eat things they don't like. And also. So it seems to me that the really the most effective way... It needs to be a whole lot of things, of course. It's about education. It's about making things easier and, and you know, some, some legal things like um, advertising and so on you can, you can fix. But what really makes a difference is if you can train children when they're corralled in school and you've actually got them and they can't go away. If you can make them like a healthy diet 
and that whole generation grows up liking a healthy diet, it'll be much easier to get the next generation to do it and they will influence their children. And so I'm always, my principal thing is that schools have to take a, sadly, because of course in an ideal world this would be the parental job, but we've lost two or three generations of parents who can't cook, who don't know anything about food, who've lived on junk food all their lives. So they are not the ideal mentors to teach their children how to like a healthy diet. So if we can get, um, I mean, poor old teachers, they get lumbered with everything, you know. But but while they're at school, and and the thing they've got on their side, if, if they take food seriously and they teach children about food and about nutrition and where it comes from and they teach them to grow, and lots of schools do this now, and they and they feed them only healthy food and and make sure that they can't eat junk i mean at least while they're at school of course you can't control what happens out of school but if you can use that time at school as a lesson so that the lunchtime is doesn't doesn't feel like a lesson it feels like a nice thing to do they sit down and they eat they all eat the same food obviously except for diets and allergies and so on um and they know what they're eating, they know why they're eating it. And schools that do this say that the the difference in their academic performance is remarkable. You know, a, a term of good eating will make a fantastic difference to kids' concentration, to their to the um, results they get at school. And the teachers that have realized this, the heads that have realized this, and think that's one of the ways to improve my league tables and get stuck in and do it become completely convinced by it. So, of course, I want that to happen all over the place. And recently, um, I've been in the press a lot for, which, of course, I didn't exactly say, say it like this, but the headlines are all, Pruleith wants to ban um, lunchboxes. Well, of course, I would like to ban lunchboxes for the simple reason that if children arrive at uh, having a school lunch, they won't eat it if they're not hungry. And if they're full of chocolate and biscuits and stuff they've brought in, um, and there are very few parents who pack a healthy lunch box, unfortunately, because they've got their kids nagging them. Can I have this? Can I have that? So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, this is not rocket science. Um, in, this is what they do in Finland. Every child sits down with their teachers they know what they're eating. They spend two weeks, I think, or a week or two weeks, I can't remember, in the kitchen um, uh, helping the cooks cook. The, co- the food comes in freshly. It's The equipment is fantastic. The environment where the children sit is a really nice place to be. Um, and they they do batch cooking, so it arrives on the cafeteria thing all fresh and just recently, you know, just cooked. And it's delicious. So the children love it. So when I say ban lunch boxes, the, before you can do that, you have to get the food really delicious and very healthy. You have to get the teachers on side. You have to get the parents on side. And parents, funnily enough, are easily persuaded if you take the trouble to persuade them. I mean, I know a school in London, a primary school, who uh, the caterers were um, going bust because so few children had school dinners and you need about 200 children in a primary school who take school lunches 
in order for the the, the money to work out, you know, for for, for it to, them to break even. And these children, they only had about 100 kids taking school lunches, but there were 250 children in the school. It wasn't, it wasn't a big school. And what the head did is he got all the parents together and he said, look, we have, it's a choice. We either close the catering and give all the kids who have free school meals, of which there are about half of them, and we give them a sandwich and an apple in a, in a packet, but nothing hot, or everybody comes and has school lunch. And I just, you know, and we all agree that. And they all agreed because they were persuaded that wouldn't it be nice to be able to go to the supermarket with the children without them nagging about what went into their lunch boxes and saying that they wanted chocolates and so just, I'm sorry, it's not allowed. Can't, school doesn't let it. So they got persuaded. And it was a remarkable because it made a huge difference to the children's um, um, attendance and their um, and their results and the atmosphere in the school and all the rest of it. But they had to persuade the parents because obviously yeah. parents' instinct is to say, I, I, that's, my, that's my job. I'll, I will decide what my children need. But I think it's part of education. I think um, you don't have any say in the maths curriculum and you shouldn't have any say in the food... Eating curriculum. But yeah, as you yeah. can see, this is quite extreme. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I know schools that... Are, I know two other schools. Um, one, a, um, a school in Oxford, which is entirely vegetarian and uh, very healthy. And they do a lot of um, other food studies and growing and, you know, food politics. And they just make kids interested in food. That's the, the interesting thing. And um, the other one is in Sheffield. And they have fish on Fridays because the head is convinced, and actually he's right, that fish is very good for the brain. And so they have fish on Fridays, but they have vegetarian food, the rest. And I went there for lunch and they were having tacos and they had, um, they could fill them with anything they liked and there were lots of different things. Most, um, all vegetarian, but they were delicious. They were like otolenghi salads. You know, they had butternut squash and garlic and, and um, spring onions in one and they had some little curry, chickpea curry thing in another. They had a whole lot of different things and salady things. And I said, how can you afford to have pineapple and sweet corn in the salad? I mean, that's very expensive. And he said, because we don't buy any meat. He said, meat is what costs too much money. Veg vegetables are basically much cheaper. And if you, if you don't um, buy any meat, then you can, on, on, on a budget, I think it was about uh, two pounds, they were getting two pounds 80. Um, you know, that was the charge, cost of the... Of the for the for the parents, and about half of that goes on food, and so in their food budget they could afford to have red peppers and sweet corn and and interesting stuff, and then the everybody sat down to lunch, all the teachers, all the caterers, and the children, and the um, and then they had a conversation, um, which the head led. And the, the kids could jump up and talk about anything that they wanted to, you know, and some of them would talk about politics and history and stuff. It's a secondary school. And some of them were talking about um, the food and, you know, um, 
what, what they liked and what they didn't like and could they have. And it was a sort of huge discussion. And I thought, I just want every secondary school to go to that school, every secondary yeah. school head. Because if the head isn't convinced, it doesn't matter how good the food teacher is, she won't get, you know, for example, taking cookery lessons. Rupi, just stop me. I'm on a sort of roll here. So if yeah, you want- no, 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 go ahead. I'm, I, I'm loving this. <laughs> it's making my job very easy, Prue. You carry on. <laughs> just gabbing away, gabbing away. You, you said your own solution was um, extreme or might have been interpreted as extreme, but I think we're living in such outlandish circumstances where the rates of obesity are so high in this country and, and others as well. We're one of the worst in, in, in Europe. We have a damaged um, food environment where it's easier and cheaper to have the high calorie, low nutrient dense foods than it is the uh, other foods that we know we should be feeding our children. And I think it almost requires a radical solution, one that you've just described, where we have a largely vegetarian system for children supplemented with fish. Um, you have food politics being discussed and you have nutrition firmly on the curricula. I wonder, like, you know, if, it's very simple to say that. And I know people might be thinking, you know, we're just sat here talking through the lens of privilege. But this is very actionable, as you've just stated some examples in schools in the UK, but also in Finland. Well, interestingly, Finland had exactly the same problem as we have now. I mean, to be honest, it's my experience of Finland is 10 years out of date. So I honestly don't know what's happening now. But by and large, those Scandinavian countries are much better at this than, than we are. About 35 five years ago, Finland had the highest um, obesity rates in Europe because they had recently changed from a culture where everybody was out in the freezing cold, shoveling snow and walking to school and at at best a bicycle, but certainly not a car. And so, um, so the whole nation could, it didn't matter that they lived mostly on protein like those northern countries do, reindeer meat and and um, lots of butter and and beef and cheese and a lot of fatty and and high protein and fish, lots of fish. So they um, were definitely um, eating more than they were burning because life had changed and it was now more sedentary and they had cars, they had central heating. I mean, one of the things people don't realise is that cold is what, being freezing is one of the best calorie burners there is. Yeah. <laughs> you go for a freezing cold walk. It's not the walk that's doing it, it's the cold. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so they decided as a government that they had to do something. So it started with government and they got a lot of experts together and they realised that in order to really change the culture, they had to um, do. Tackle, they tackled parents, grown ups, workplaces, and um, and schools. They they completely they decided that as I would like that food was to be in, integrated into the curriculum entirely. So that you know the sports people would talk to the children about. Um, you know the diet and sport and hydration and all that, all that stuff. And in history, they'd learn about the history of food. I mean, most wars are all about food, and land, and, and yeah. that stuff. And they learned so in and in science, they'd be doing nutrition. So that it was embedded in the whole curriculum. They also decided to spend a lot of money on 
the environment that the children would be sitting in. So the dining rooms and the kitchens were really... The kitchen I went into, and I think it's pretty standard, is the equipment was fantastic. There was no frying at all. There was no deep fryer. There was no surface cooking. Everything was done in either tilting kettles, which are like big stir fryers, like big um, bowls that are heated and jacketed and they move all the time so you can make soups and and stir fry stuff so a lot of fresh veg and things would go in there and then and then they had very good um combi ovens and everything's and trays of food that would be going into there and those those combi ovens can they can roast they can shallow fry they can um, steam they can do anything so they, they spent a lot of money on kit and they halved the number of people that worked in the kitchen. And so from the financial point of view, they actually didn't, you know, the, the, the investment was worth it. And I think it took three years to, for, to pay for the initial investment simply on the wages because, you know, they needed much less staff. They decided the children should help with the cooking so they should understand the process, help with laying up. They decided meals had to be a social time. And they actually have it in their... In their statement of curriculum that 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 although lunch is a, a lesson it's a time for relaxation and um, restoration or something and that it should be a pleasure so um you know they just did so they did schools very well they also from the parents point of view they there's a lot of public information went in and they made vegetables and they subsidized fresh veg in um, shops and um, taxed um, meat and, and dairy much more highly. And what else did they do? They they did things like clearing paths in the winter so people could get some exercise and they, they gave them sub, people subsidised um, kind of things like clogs really but they didn't slip on the ice so that because they found yeah. that a lot of old people didn't go out because they didn't want to slip. So they did something about it. They put exercise parks into the public parks so people could get onto machines. And, anyway, so they did the thing from top to bottom and it worked. Yeah. I mean, they got their obesity rates right down. I mean, when I was looking at it, they were, you know, we had an obesity rate at that time of wasn't, you know, to, today that doesn't sound so terrible, but it was, I thought it was pretty terrible. It was about 15%. Well, of course, it's now 30% or something. Yeah, um, yeah. But we were about 15%. But they got their rates down to 1.5% for... Wow. one and a half. I think 1.5% for children at school and 2% for adults. So they really That's did incredible. it. You know, it took, a, yeah. it took a while, but they did it. It'd be interesting to follow up and see what they're up to now. And... Um, you know, so that, you know, there are examples, but it does take political leadership. And one of the problems is we've had lots of um, good initiatives in schools. And there are terrific initiatives now, like Chefs in Schools, which puts chefs into schools and does exactly what I've been talking about. Mm. Um, you know, they don't just cook the food, they teach the children and they sit down with them and so forth. And um, But these are generally charities. The best stuff that goes on is led by a charity. And, of course, that will never do. For, you know, you're never going to get the whole nation. Um, you know, it's like in prisons, all the best initiatives seem to be done by arts charities or food charities yeah. or something. So 
So we, it doesn't, it doesn't really work if you don't get government commitment. And and from from just those examples that you've described, that I mean, you've talked about them a lot on your blog and then in, in magazine articles as well, um, because you're a prolific writer. Not only I bang on, I do bang on on the subject. That's true. Yeah, yeah which is great. But you know, it, it strikes me as, as that we need a, a huge cultural change, and it starts at schools. I completely agree. You know, with the creating a new generation of children who are food literate, who understand the importance. Also pre, um, pre-birth, I think there's a marvellous opportunity because all the pregnant mums are anxious to do the best they can for their children. And they do get advice from, um, you know, antenatal clinic, clinics and so forth. But, I mean, that's a really good moment to, um, to try to influence. But, of course, it's really difficult if the mums themselves are living on chips and... Absolutely, yeah. And, and it really there are good can reasons. Be. I mean, there are good reasons to live on chips. You know, if you if you don't have a lot of money, it's the cheapest and most delicious thing. So it's really hard to change an adult's diet because they're, you know, once you're grown up, you, you're in charge of your own life, and you don't you resent interference, and you think, well, it didn't hurt. You know, I've I've, I've actually often talk to people who say, well, it's, they're sitting there seriously overweight and obviously not well and puffing to get up the steps. They'll say, well, it never did me any harm because you're instinctively protective of the decisions you've made. You don't want to admit that you've made bad decisions. And, of course, once you are, I think people are not sympathetic enough to, to people who are seriously obese or overweight because... I mean, you're a doc, so you'll tell me if I'm right about this. But it seems to me that one of the problems is that if you are already very overweight, you have this huge body which is demanding to be fed. And so you're hungry all the time. You're much hungrier than you or I am. I'm a lot fatter than you, so I presumably am slightly (laughs) more hungry than you are. But if you're you're skinny and... um, very, of course, you get hungry, but you don't. You, you don't need to be eat all the time. And if you're very overweight, you have to keep that body going. I, I did a podcast episode on this very fact, actually, because everything you you said there is completely correct. In that, obesity isn't isn't a uh, a general lifestyle choice. It's it's literally a disease where. The bigger you are, the higher your your weight set point, and the more hung, the, the the hunger hormones really really do go into overdrive. Particularly if you try and diet using a calorie restricted approach, so you can lose weight on a calorie restricted diet, but your hunger levels will go through the roof. Uh, and and I think you're right. We need to come at this through a real compassionate lens and give people the tools. Um, whether that be through government schemes, improving outdoor gym access, or the the, the subtle touches that you just described there uh, that Finland did as well, with you know brushing down the the path so that they can go out and, and subsidising clogs that are, are actually you know that those little nudges are super super powerful at a population level. If you've got limited resources, um, I don't want to say we should give up on the grown ups because of course we shouldn't, but. If you have limited resources, the most effective way to use them is on children because, A, they're more receptive because they, especially in primary school, they really want to please teacher. You know, there comes a time in adolescence they definitely don't want to please teacher, but 
They want to do what teacher asks and they are very easily influenced by their peers. So if you get, I've seen it in many primary schools, when they have very good um, meals and very good food teaching, um, year seven children coming into the um, uh, secondary school, say, um, if, if, they, if the year seven child has not had a good diet but comes in to a school where the year eights are eating, um, you know, everything they're given, they will follow suit. Children, children do what other children do. And yeah, I've just seen, I would like to put a program together that just showed all the best little practices that happen in schools. One school I went to in Hull, um, which is a primary school, the older children were um, standing behind little ones and helping them with knife and fork, show them how to use a knife and fork. Because these children, were, you know, they, they went to the school at five, I think, in those days. Now it's mostly four, but they, they arrived at five. But, but nearly all of them, because they were in a very poor area, had been brought up on handheld food. So they couldn't use a knife and fork. And these elder ones really enjoyed teaching them how to, to do it. It was too sweet. And um, I said to that teacher, that head teacher, who was an Italian woman, I said, you know, this is so fantastic because all your children will, you know, because you, 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 the whole of their primary school life, they're going to have had nothing but good food from you. So they will know about good food. And when they grow up, they'll, they'll go on eating it. She said, well, they'll probably come back to it. But she said, believe me, at secondary school, they won't be eating good food. I said, why? She said, well, there's only one good section. There's only one secondary school around here. It, it takes all the primary school children from all the estates around where they were. And she said, they there are 1,100 students in that school. And the head teacher's attitude is that it's, they're, they're, I think he, she said there are nine gates to the school because it's an enormous school. Um, and she said at break time, he just opens the gates and the chip van comes up, one chip van to each gate. And they just um, feed the kids chips. And she said, you know, it's all the chips you can eat for a pound. It's half the price of, half the price of a school meal. And um, so, of course, they, that's, that's what the children need. And she said, anyway, any little boy who, you know, age, whatever, 11 or something, says... Um, you know, I, I, I wants to eat vegetables. He said that older boys will tease him or, you know, he'll be rib rotten. He'll give it up immediately. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it has to be sustained. and It has to be everywhere. Yeah, I, I think you're so right about using an ingenious way to tap into the psychology of children whereby they like pleasing teacher like you said and they like copying from their peers and, and they respond to you know subtle peer pressure or extreme peer pressures as well so there's definitely something in that in 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 making vegetables the thing to do to please teacher but also to to you know be reinforced in your social groups as well um and you know i think the the pandemic particularly poses an opportunity to to really think about some radical change in that respect. I mean, the, the primary aim is to address food insecurity, and that's something we've done on the podcast with a number of different charities. And it's amazing, and you said it right there as well, about 
how the best work appears to be through charities because they truly, truly care and they're not wading through this, you know, bureaucracy and amounts of bureaucracy. Exactly. Yeah. So, and a, and a TV program on that, I think, would be would be wonderful for you. You should definitely work on that because it would be super uplifting. I'd love to. It's, it's so, and because I've been at this game for, you know, 50 years or something, so I've seen things come and go and, and, um, and some things have got better, definitely, and some things have definitely got worse. And I think that ultimately um, one of the serious problems is the snacking culture, is the fact that manufacturers are going to win this battle because in a way the government's got its hands tied behind its back because they get a lot of tax out of chocolate and and ice cream and and all the things that make us fat and they're all delicious and they you know the cheapest snacks are mostly made of fat sugar and salt and those are the three things we should really not be having too much of (laughs) so you know manufacturers are going to win they have a bigger budget per day than I had when I chaired the School Food Trust, which was the government body trying to fix school food. They had, I should think, let's take Mars Bar. <clears throat> I should think the budget for Mars Bar, for one, for just for that one product, would be greater than my whole annual budget for 20,000 <laughs> 20, schools to try to change the culture. And, and also they're starting from the fact that everybody loves um, caramel and chocolate and whatever Mars bars are made of. Mm, yeah, exactly. Because they don't necessarily love bars. they don't necessarily <laughs> love cabbage and carrots. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I do th- I do think that nobody is facing up to the fact that we're not going to win this um, unless without government intervention. I, I mean, uh, we got when we had the school food trust, we did get. Um, junk banned out of vending machines in schools and because at the time children were living in, on vending machines. And now, of course, we're trying to get vending machines to sell healthier um, options to your lot, to NHS staff, who, who, by the way, we should talk about them. I mean, when you think that a nurse or a carer does a 12-hour shift, so there's no time to shop, no time to cook, and they're exhausted at the end of it, so, of course, they live on chocolate bars and vending machines. And it, there are some hospitals, I regret to say, which still have no, nothing hot and nothing healthy for 12-hour shift that, that staff could get. And the, the theory is, well, they should bring in their own packed lunch. But when are they going to buy the food for it? And when are they going to make it when they are on a 12-hour shift? You know, we have to have places in hospitals where nurses can have a break um, and enjoy it, sit down in a decent, not in a corridor, not in the cloakroom, but sit down in a, a, a nice sort of lounge atmosphere and have really good food. And the same with patients. You know, we need patients to have delicious um, But anyhow, the, the good thing is, and you know, we go back to this thing about governments, um, we've just done the, the, the National Food um, Hospital Report, you know, Hospital Food yeah. Report. And it, had, it has eight recommendations to it. And they are about staff feeding and about equipment in kitchens, refurbishment and the clo- kitchens being closer to 
to the patient. They're about more delicious food, but they're, and they're seriously about um, the nutritionists, the nurses and the caterers working together instead of against each other. Mm. And, um, and it's about lots of technical things that can be done and so on. So anyhow, there are eight recommendations to improve hospital food including one recommendation, which is that there should be a body to drive it forward, because it's all very well having a wonderful report. It's all very well government saying, yes, that's fantastic, we'll do it. But unless they, A, put the money there, and B, have a, somebody who's responsible for making sure it's delivered. So we've got all this. It's all happened. We have, we've, the eight recommendations are there. We've got an expert panel. We've got hospitals signed up that are very, very good and do all or almost all of the recommendation, recommended behaviours anyway to help other hospitals which are struggling. And so I'm really hopeful. But what I fear, yeah. because I've seen it happen with the School Food Trust and I've seen it happen many, many times, is government will change, priorities will change, the money will be shifted to something else and it'll die a death. Yeah. But so far... The, the cheerful thing is, and I, I know I'm always fairly optimistic, I think that for the first time we've got a government that actually understands the importance of food. I mean, everybody says that's because Boris Johnson got COVID and so he's realised that there's a connection between being overweight and not and having a bad time with COVID. Well, I'm sure that's something to do with it. But before that, Michael Grove, who's rather keen on the environment, had set up the National Food Strategy, uh, which um, Henry Dimbleby has been um, leading. You should have Henry on. He's been really, yeah. really interesting. Anyway, yeah. his, his, his remit and his, his report, we've had half of his report already, but there's another half coming this, later this year. And... His, his recommendations have to cover food and farming and um, the environment and imports and exports and education and everything I've, we've been talking about. So it's a huge thing, but at least it shows the government realises that food is central to the nation's health and happiness and trade Absolutely. and everything else. Food is a huge Absolutely. bit of our trade. So... A, that's happened. The, the, um, you know, we've had the hospital food report and now we've had the obesity strategy. So they at least are aware. I just hope they, are, they stay aware and that all governments, you know, future governments, realise that this is a long-term battle. But governments tend to want to have new things and they don't like um, supporting anything that their pre predecessors supported. So I'm yeah. a little bit nervous. I think this is the issue when you don't have immediate cross-party buy-in to all of these different things and people want their own new shiny new strategy such that they can put that on you know, the next election campaign trail slogan or whatever. And I think, yeah, it's, it's really uh, reassuring to know that this isn't just a review. This is actually something that has a, a panel and a body in review. But like you said, you know, you've got to be cautious about that because you know what happens with you know, the school trust and everything. But I do um, think that the hospital food review um, stuff will be implemented because, uh, for example, quite a lot of the recommendations 
we'll now go into the planning for the for the ten new hospitals that are to be the, the hospital. I forget how many there are, but in the next ten years there will be a lot of new hospitals, and all of those will have kitchens close to the wards, so that you're not having this two hour wait in a trolley whereby whatever went in comes out mm-hmm. inedible. Um, so I think that. I really do think this is a moment to improve hospital food, and I think if we can, if we can get hospitals realizing that it's such a, it's a quite an easy win because at the moment, the NHS is much beloved by the public, and much beloved by patients. And if you look at patient surveys, they don't criticize the food very much. They they don't say it's wonderful, but the, you know, about half the patients, um, say it's it's um, acceptable or something, you know, sort of not, not what, one. it's not all terrible. And that's good because that means we've got hospitals that are doing the good things that who can show the others how to do it or help them. Um, and, but it's, it would be such an easy win for them because the, the, most, the most complained about thing in hospitals is the food. It's never the, yeah. it's never the nursing. It's never the, the, um, um, clinical staff. It's the food. So why don't we fix it? And then you know those complaints will go away. I mean, I, there's a couple of things that you you mentioned there that I I definitely um, I I definitely also emphasised when I was asked for my opinion on the review, and that was about protected staff times for food, but also providing food as well for staff. And that seems a bit radical, but actually what you just described there if you you are doing 12-hour shifts you don't have time no matter how quick the recipe no matter how much you know you plan you're always going to be relying on whatever is convenient and generally what's in the convenient is not healthy at all and if you look at the impact across healthcare professionals it's no wonder we're more likely to be obese we're more likely to suffer depression we're more likely to have cardiovascular disease we're more likely to die younger it, all these different factors. Yeah, even drug addiction is high in, in um, the medical profession. Yeah, I mean, for a, for a host of reasons, it's definitely an area that needs targeting um, with food and other interventions, for sure. Mm. You and I should rule the world. <laughs> Talking of programs, actually, so we can talk about this now. We've been under lock and key for a while. Um, we did a program that I'm, I was super privileged to, to work with you on. Um, I think it's wonderful. I don't actually know the name of it. I don't, I, it might have changed by the time this goes out and Ed, Do you know what the name is? Well, I, I know it, it, the last two words are spend less. I think it's like cook more, spend less or something. Cook like more, that. spend less. Okay, yeah. But I think that's a temporary name. I, I don't think it's going to stay that way. But it, the point is it's four programs where we, um, we remember we saw four different families who were all struggling mm. with producing healthy food for their um, children and who um, some of them didn't like cooking, some of them just didn't have time, some of them... Um, one woman absolutely hated cooking. So yeah. we gave them a plan, a plan, and um, and saved them a lot of money if they stick to it. So 
so we'll see if they stick to it. Yeah, we'll see. I still haven't come across the results just yet because we've only just finished recording it. But um, I had a blast doing it because I think another thing that we don't really um, talk much about is food waste and actually how to action the process of reducing food waste saving money which i mean who wouldn't want a few extra grand every year you know that's enough for a holiday whenever we're allowed out um so yeah and it was great it was a really good uh um experience getting to meet the families um i love sanjeev's uh recommendation that we could call the program rupee and true rupee and prue make it true that would be great <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it was really good, really good experience. I loved no, it. It was a good experience. Um, it was, it, we were helped in a way because the, the families were, um, they were up for, for, for change. I think if we had had four families who, who were in dire straits, you know, who were really, um, you know, living in tremendously deprived conditions, and who had never eaten well, it would have been it would be a lot much longer job. I mean, I think that we yeah. have we have a fair chance of of the the four couples. I hope we have a fair chance. We won't know, and we wouldn't tell you anyway because we want you to watch the program. <laughs> but I think we'll have I think we'll have a fair chance um, that that at least some of them will stick to our plan and will and will benefit from it and and will think this is ridiculous why don't i just keep doing this it's much better than yeah. the way i was before and save a lot of money totally yeah and hopefully it will inspire the people as well who watch the program like ah i, ne- I never really thought about using parsnips in that way I and mean, we had some really experimental recipes that are super easy to do i know we did have some great recipes and i have to say i've made a few of them since because i thought i mean i learned a lot too you know it was great yeah. we had a home economist on the on the show called luke and luke is mm. i said to luke you better write a cookbook because you really are full of good ideas yeah, it's an amazing tea. A lot, a, lot, a lot of people don't realize that actually when you do programs and, and, and stuff that there's like a huge team behind it. Well, not a huge, but like a few people behind it who are super experimental and we work with them to create recipes. And one was Luke, Botry, Rob uh, and Holly uh, were on hand on the actual shoot days as well. And they're, they're just brilliant. Um, and, you know, it's their sort of creativity that we also get to showcase and then, you know, try and encourage. People the, think it's us, the, see, Ruby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the magic, the magic of television. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anyway, you're not meant to give away all these secrets, you know. Yeah, I know, no. <laughs> it was a lot of us. It was a lot of us as well. But, you, you know, you, you're involved in so many different TV programs, Um you're like an activist on so many different levels. Where do you think that's sort of come from? Is it is it your experience going back to where you grew up and stuff, and your experience of apartheid, and and how you realised how wrong that was as as you grew older? Is that is that where it comes from? Is it? No, I think it might. I think my sort of interfering side might come from my mum because she used to campaign against apartheid. She she belonged to a woman's group called the Black Sash. They wore black sashes like other people wear red roses or whatever, mm. or pink ribbons. Um, and she, um, I remember her coming home. She, she had a black coat and she came home one day and she had sort of horrible great yellow splashes all over it because people had been throwing eggs at, at 
these women who were just um, silently protesting outside the city hall um, about apartheid. And she spent a lot of her time, because she was an actress, she wanted to, um, she wanted to be able to cast a play with black actors in it, which of course wasn't allowed. I mean, you, could, you couldn't even have a black actor playing Othello. Isn't that ridiculous? You know? Wow. Um, and you couldn't have audiences mixed. And she, and she wanted to have mixed audiences because she was doing um, generally some quite highbrow plays, you know, Ibsen and, and Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde and Chekhov and so on. So... The the, the 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 government idea was well you, you can have separate performances for black audiences, but they're not enough because the black audiences black people come generally from very poor backgrounds. They're not going to be enough theatre goers to even quarter fill a theatre. So unless you can allow black people, you could allow black people into the same um, performances as whites. It just denies black people any chance of seeing any theatre ever because it would be uneconomic to put a show on just for black people of that kind. Obviously, if it was a jazz concert, it would be different. Anyway, so she campaigned very hard for this and she managed to persuade the, at one point, the um, the actors, I mean, the, no, the, the writers' union in England had decided to ban all of their works going to South Africa because of apartheid. So she didn't agree with this because she believes, and I must say I do too, that burning the books is not the way to persuade people. You don't. What you want is more theatre and more plays, plays about injustice and... and um, and so forth. So she she came in, and at the time John Mortimer was the head of the writers' union here, and she managed to persuade him to lift the ban. So that was good because that meant more wow. more good plays could go to South Africa. Yeah, and she did, and she did get black um, audiences into white theatres. Fab. So do you think that's where you got your sort of uh, your your instincts uh, to to always you know speak out against? I, 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 ne- I never thought of it at the time because I've just done it all my life. Um, yeah. And and interestingly, my um, children both do. So I think maybe it runs in families. But I think the idea that I'm pretty dogged. You know, if I think something needs doing. I tend not to give up. <laughs> I'm still trying on food. But, the, but my proudest achievement has nothing to do with food at all. It's, you know, you know that um, there's a plinth on, in Trafalgar Square that now has modern sculpture on it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very proud of that because it wouldn't have happened without me because one day, I mean, we were talking about um, 25 years ago, I was driving round Trafalgar Square in the days when you could drive round Trafalgar Square, and there was this great big plinth, enormous. It's nine feet wide and fifteen feet long, or something. It's huge, seventeen feet long, and it's right outside the National Gallery. And I just looked at it and thought, you know, I've driven past this thing so often, and it's always been empty. There must have once been a sculpture on there, probably an equestrian statue like the matching one across the square. So I wrote a letter to the Evening Standard saying, why don't they put back whatever it was that was on there? They must have fixed it by now. It's been empty for 20 years. And um, then lots of people wrote in saying, stupid woman, doesn't she know there's never been a statue on that 
plinth. Uh-huh. No, because it was William the Fourth. It was supposed to be for William the Fourth uh, when when the square was laid out, and he was so unpopular. They used to call him Silly Billy, and he was really unpopular. And he was paying for it. And when he died, nobody wanted to put it up, and nobody uh-huh. would, nobody would fund it. So they never did. And um, so it was always empty. And then the reason it had always been empty was because nobody could agree what would go on it. So I, that was a challenge for me. I thought, right, we've got to fix this. <laughs> so I, I thought, I know what we'll do. We'll ask the public. So I started a little campaign with the Evening Standard and people wrote in with their, with their suggestions of what should go on. And mostly people thought of heroes, you know. But, of course, one man's hero is another man's villain, so we couldn't agree. And there were, there were some great suggestions. You know, Nelson Mandela was one, because South Africa House is on Trafalgar Square. But they said, no, 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 you know, they'd never have political, you'd never have political statues in Trafalgar Square. They have to go in Parliament Square or South Bank or somewhere. So everybody... Even the even the armed forces. I went to the MOD and said, you know, can you guys agree on who would be a a good hero to put on there? And of course, the RAF wanted an RAF man, and the, and the, <laughs> Navy, the Navy wanted a naval. So that didn't work. And there were suggestions of a giant pigeon, which was quite a good idea because the that yeah. thing was just full of pigeon poo mm. all the time. Oh, and then there was people wanted, you know. Gaza, the footballer, or (laughs) lots and lots of amazing things. So finally I realised we were never going to get anywhere because we'd never get... We'd have the same problem as everybody else has had for 200 years, which is that you can't agree. And then one of my little committee, because by then I was chairman of um, of the Royal Society of Arts, so I got a good little group together, and... One of them was a chap called James Lingwood who runs a thing called Art Angel, which does sort of happenings and art um, art installations and projects and sound sculptures and all sorts of funny things. And he's quite weird but wonderful. And he said, why don't we suggest temporary exhibitions because then nobody will complain because they'll know it's coming down anyway. And by the time they've got their complaints through all the committees and bureaucracy, it'll be gone anyway. So, so that that little simple thought was just magic and brilliant. Yeah. So once we did that, it was fantastic. So then we asked for submissions from um, well-known artists. And at first it was quite difficult. We had to persuade artists to do it because there was a sort of feeling at the time that stuff on a plinth was rather old-fashioned and... You know, plinths meant, you know, I don't know, colonial white men on a horse. Mm. And so um, they, it, 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 but anyhow, at the beginning, I could, we had to go around asking the best artists to, to, to do it. And most of them refused. But now, I mean, every pot, top artist has been there. Anthony Gormley has been there, Anish Kapoor. Um, Tracy Evan, or anybody you can think of has had their moment on top of. That's incredible. I, I honestly, I didn't realize that you were responsible for that because that has been, you know, such a talking point over across a number of years, depending on what art installation. I remember it was the Tracy uh, Emin one, I think, that, that caused quite a bit of a stir. 
It was, and yeah. Americans. And then Anthony Gormley's was most peculiar. It was just an empty plinth. He just arranged for people to go and do their thing. So yeah. <laughs> you, you could book your, book your spot and get on there and for an hour, for whatever it was, yeah. sing or dance or do whatever. Um, but in order for him to do that, we had to build a sort of rather ugly net all around it <laughs> in case you fell off. <laughs> <laughs> it's very high. <laughs> on one side, it's very high. On the on the um, on the square side, it's very high. So yeah. anyway, I, w- I I have just loved that, and it's different every year, and so it's um it's very exciting, and and I, I'm That's proud of that because thing. I think that might continue because the public love it, the artists mm. love it. Um, of course, the artists now love it because it's what could be a better advertisement of their work, you know, middle of Trafalgar Square. So since everybody loves it, I think it would be a very brave mayor who said, I'm going to stop it. So that may go on. Anyway, it'll go on for my lifetime. So I won't know if it doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. I mean, honestly, there's so many aspects of your life I had no idea about, Peru. I mean, you really need to write all this down in like a compendium. I mean, the Well, I did did write write an autobiography. Um, oh, did you? When was that? Yes, it's called Relish. Maybe I'll, I'll bore you with a, a book. It's called Relish, and it's full of stories about me. Um, but when I published it, it was before I went on Bake Off and before I married John. So I had to quickly, they had to republish it with me putting Bake Off stuff in and my, <clears throat> my second marriage because my first husband died in 2002. And when I wrote it, I was still a widow. But um, then I met John ten years ago. So there's and my daughter got married. So there were so, so there were so much had happened in my life recently that I had to catch it up. But um, uh, it is. It took me two years to write it, and I've written seven novels. But I I found the autobiography much more difficult than the novels. Because, I mean, no- novels, you're making it up, so you can change it if you don't like it. I mean, <laughs> dealing with your own life, it's, a, it's, it's quite, you know. It's, but I decided, one of the things I decided about writing an autobiography, and it's very interesting talking to other um, people who've done it, who've written memoirs, is um, what do you record? You see, I called it a memoir because I reckon I would just write about the things that I thought were interesting. I wouldn't write all of it. I mean, I hate those but, uh, uh, biographies which you know just go plodding through every boring part of your life so I thought I'd just write about the interesting stuff but then I did just make a decision that I would write everything that was would be interesting to the reader rather than um, sort of expurgate the embarrassing bits or the failures and so the, so the failures are in there the embarrassing bits are in there everything's in there and um that um, that caused a little bit of, um, of tension in my family because although my children were given copies before to read um, and they, they, they agreed them, when, when the memoir was published, of course, the press just picked out all the juicy bits or all the scandalous bits or all the... just took out all the things and, and blasted them all over the newspapers. So my... Son, particularly, who's a very private guy and was um, embarrassed by 
intensely embarrassed by this mother's behaviour. Um, and he said to me, Mum, you're a journalist. I mean, you know perfectly well how the press behaves. How could you have done it? And I said, but Daniel, you have, you know, you read it. You read it. And he said, well, I wasn't thinking. I shouldn't have. And so yeah. So we had a, we had a, a quite a sort of quarrel, really. And then he went off. Um, I was staying at his house at the time, and he went off. And in the evening, he came back with a present, you know, a beautifully wrapped present. And I thought, oh, poor boy, he's sorry about this morning. You know, and, and um, you know, he's, this, this, this is an olive branch. He's come to apologise. So I opened, the, I opened the box, and in the box was a megaphone with a note saying, just in case there's anybody who doesn't know about your private life, <laughs> perhaps this would help. <laughs> Which is quite witty. <laughs> That's so witty. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the autobiography. Uh, I'm gonna send you one with all those bits. I definitely. I uh, I watched your program with um, with your daughter, which was beautifully made. Um, and it, there, there was one bit. I think it was at the start of the program where you said um, you're not the type of person to to cry or to you know show your emotions in in that way quite publicly. And um, I'm the opposite when I watch TV programs. At the hint of anyone being upset on the TV program, I bought. I don't know why. I think it's because I hold it in when I'm at work when I'm when I'm sat in front of hundreds, if not more, people you know who are upset or you know helping them through. And you've got to hold it together. And you know, obviously, never cry in front of that. But maybe it comes out when I'm watching TV programs. And I bawled throughout the entire program. It was such an emotional roller coaster, through. Honestly, it was. It was beautifully done as well and obviously very very emotional for you um i wonder if we could talk about that i mean i've always thought leader's story because my daughters you, you will know if you watch the film she um is adopted she's cambodian and she came out of cambodia just before the khmer rouge um took over Phnom Penh, and so you know she was she escaped on the last plane uh, out and uh, she was only a baby then and um, you know she, I got her when she was 16 months old so her her backstory is so emotional anyway and she's become very um, close to Cambodia and goes there a lot and um, helps it with a charity and in fact set up another charity in that film do you remember one of the things we had to do was DNA testing to see if we yeah. could find her, her, her birth mother and um, we realised that one of the there are thousands of Cambodians still looking. This is forty years later, forty five years right. after the genocide of, of so many of the people of Cambodia. Twenty five percent of the of the right. population were killed, and um, and there are still people looking for missing relatives from that time. Of course, they're getting older and and so on. But but DNA testing would really help find them. And so leaders now set up a charity that will get cheap or free DNA testing for, for those people. So she, she you know, she's a, I'm proud of her because she's a bit of a campaigner too. And um, she, but I, I, I did find it much, I just thought I was going on a nice jolly. It would be lovely to spend two weeks with my daughter and have her to myself without her son and her husband and, you know, once you've got family and children, you don't see your children one-to-one -one anymore. So I thought this is a brilliant opportunity to have 
two-week one-to-one with my daughter. And I, I didn't think I'd be affected as I was. And so and there was a bit of me blubbing on... Oh, anyway, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> I, ju- I thought it just showed such a lovely, genuine and authentic part of your personality that a lot of people don't get to see on TV anyway, you know. Yeah, they people just see me being, might... being unkind about cake. <laughs> about cake, exactly, yeah. And there's so much richness to your life and, you know, the activism and all the different things that you've been involved in. It's um, I, I think it was just beautifully done. And you said it's been a, a nominated for an award or yes, something it like ha- that? Yes, there is. Um, I don't know too much about documentary awards, but it's, um, it's up for some smart award so I hope we win it because it'll, it'll be a great um, Philip to lead who has just set up her own um, a company with, with two uh, two friends film film production company she's in the film business that's what she's been doing oh, ever. Okay. but that um, film will help I think brilliant it's good for her reputation wonderful but yeah no great I, I mean great. I'm, I'm sort of proud of my son too because you know he spent 10 years running at, he started with his wife he started a prison charity worrying about um trying to get get recidivism down and to try and prevent pe- children getting into crime and to look after people when they come out of prison so that they don't go straight back into prison and he's been absolutely brilliant at that. He's an MP now, but for 10 years he ran this charity, which still go, is still going. Um, but, you know, it's the same old thing. It's the charities that do the best work. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, definitely, definitely. Pru, I could talk to you for another two hours. Um, <laughs> we better stop. Respectful <laughs> of your time. Yeah, we've got, we've got a lot of things to do. Um, I can't wait for our program to go out. Uh, it's been, it was a pleasure working with you on that i really do hope we get to do some other stuff in in whatever field do you remember how we first met was culinary medicine because we both both wanting um doctors to know more more about um food and nutrition i mean the problem i mean no you are an exceptional exceptional doctor but most doctors eat badly smoke too much drink too much I, I may be exaggerating a bit, but they, they and they tend because of the pressures on their time to take the easy option when a patient comes in and give them some pills rather than give them a decent you know, help to get onto a good diet. Yeah, I remember you were you were at the first coloring medicine inaugural day in the front row nonetheless taking notes as well uh i've still got the pictures actually i should should repost that actually with this podcast but um yeah no it was uh your support has been incredible um well i think what you're trying to do is really important unfortunately it's going well isn't it i mean it's growing yeah it's growing we're in different universities we've got lots of uh, interest and we're building the online course as well so it's more accessible to doctors across the uk i mean i do think that the most important part of all that is the getting it into the into the medical courses so that yeah. all doctors who qualify will know a lot about nutrition and preferably know how to cook exactly exactly we're working on it and it's uh it's with your with your love and support so thank you Prue. thanks Rupi. that was fun thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast you can find more on the show notes and at the doctorskitchen.com sign up for the newsletter for weekly recipes and tips on how to help you lead a healthier happier life i will see you here next week
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.